Well, good morning. I'm Mike. I'll be preaching uh, for about uh, half an hour on that passage, and um, then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So let's just bow for one moment and pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We ask this morning that you would enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility of heart without which no one can understand your truth through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Can I ask you to uh, use your imagination for a few minutes? You're not sitting here in Chesington this morning in a, a sports hall in 2023. You are living in Egypt around about 1450 BC, three and a half thousand years ago. And you are a young boy or a young girl and you are an Israelite. It's the 14th day of the month and tonight's the night. Tension and excitement is in the air. It's so thick, you can feel it. You could almost cut it. Four days ago, Dad took the best lamb that he could find, and he set it apart and cared for it for four days. And it had to be a year-old male lamb without any blemishes or any defect, the very best that we could find. And at twilight tonight, it will be slaughtered. And then we're going to eat lamb with our family and our neighbors. Roast lamb. A real treat. And that on its own is rare enough in our family. But the food isn't the reason for the excitement. The instructions are. We've been told that tonight is the night of freedom. After many long years of oppression, we're going. We're throwing off the, rope, the yoke of slavery. And all of that is going to be behind us. All the misery, all the oppression will be free. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, we'll be free at last. We're going to walk tall, breathe the fresh air, throw off the shackles, because our God, whose name is Yahweh, is going to set us free. And so for the last few days, there has been feverish activity. Mum, packing as much stuff as we can carry, which isn't very much. Dad, trying to hide from mum and look busy at the same time, which is quite difficult to do. And today, food preparation. Dad is preparing the lamb with specific instructions. The whole thing is going to have to be roasted. Everything. The, nothing boiled, nothing raw. Mum is preparing bread, but made unusually without leaven or yeast, which makes it rise. So this will be flatbread. And she also has to prepare bitter herbs. So it's quite an interesting meal. And we've all got to get dressed, ready to go. Sandals on. Staff in hand, cloak tucked into your belt so that it doesn't slow you down. We've got to eat this special meal standing up. We've got to eat this meal in a hurry. And we've got to eat as much as we can because there will be no leftovers tomorrow morning. We'll be gone. Now, eating a meal standing up as quick as you can, ready to go, is a young boy's dream, isn't it? I'm always telling my boys not to do any of those things. And we mustn't, we really mustn't forget the blood. Some of that lamb's blood is going to be set aside specially, and the instructions on this have been very, very clear. It must be painted 
on the door frames of our house, left and right, and on the lintel that goes across the top. And under no circumstances must we forget that, and under no circumstances must we go out of that door and go outside tonight. Why? Moses told us, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. So it's the 14th day of the month and tonight's the night. And the excitement and tension in the air is so thick, you could cut it. But we all have questions. We all have fears. After all that we've seen, we, we really do know the Lord's power. We really do. After nine signs of increasing power and devastation, starting with the river Nile turning into a polluted nightmare, leading up to the ninth sign of darkness over the land, and in between that, all sorts of ecological havoc wreaked on the gods of Egypt. We know by now, everybody knows that nothing is too great for our Lord. But the death of the firstborn is another level. Are we in danger? God has said that every family, every, even animals will lose a firstborn. And, and how on earth could the blood of a little one-year-old lamb offer any kind of protection against that kind of plague? What might happen to my older brother? Now that's the Exodus experience from the eyes of a child. And the rest, as they say, is history. That night God did exactly what he said he would. And tragically, the firstborn in every household in Egypt did die, including the king himself, Pharaoh. It happened. And the Israelites were spared and escaped the next morning. They were given gifts by their neighbors, back payment for all those years of servitude, and they went on their way towards freedom. Now, what is the Bible teaching us here? This is an amazing story, but it's not just telling us stories for the sake of entertainment. The Bible, in this book especially, is teaching us how we can know God, know the Lord. I want to share with you three brief thoughts as we come towards the Lord's table today. The first one is that this was the only way to freedom I think those thoughts are on that screen there. The only way to freedom. Remember that Egypt at this point was a totalitarian state, ruled by an iron dictator, Pharaoh. He was not open to reason. He has had plenty of opportunities to turn around and let them go. He will not budge. And so he has come right down to the final plague. Heart harder than ever. Nothing can change his mind except perhaps the death of the firstborn, which means the death of your future. We've seen enough of totalitarian states, haven't we, in the 20th century to know something of what this looks like. People whose freedom has been utterly stripped from them. People whose humanity has been cruelly debased. People who have been given nothing left to hope for. Whether it's the concentration camps of the Nazis or the gulags of the Soviet era, or the killing fields of Cambodia, we have seen this kind of thing. 
George Orwell was one of the most powerful voices to talk about what the lack of freedom feels like. In his book, 1984, he wrote, if you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. That was the future that awaited the Israelites. There was no other way to free them. Now, do we feel pity for the ordinary Egyptian family? Yes, we do. And we're right to. Just as there were no doubt decent German citizens swept along with Hitler and his Third Reich. And decent Russian families who were involved to some degree in Stalin's purges. There are different levels of guilt, aren't there? But some consequence falls on all. They were ultimately complicit. And we mustn't forget the fact that there was an open opportunity for any Egyptians who wanted to, to leave with the Exodus. And many did. They were referred to as the mixed multitude. It wasn't just the Israelites that left. Many people went with them. After all the warnings, it comes down to this. God didn't start with death. He started with drinking water. But it came down to this because it was the only way to win their freedom. Secondly, he's the judge of all or not at all. Here we see God as judge, the judge of all. This is what this teaches. Now, notice that a disobedient Israelite or a very foolish Israelite or someone very careless would actually fall under the same judgment as the Egyptians. They too could lose their firstborn. Why? It's a lesson it teaches us that ultimately the Israelites aren't really any better. Just in case we fall into the error of thinking, oh, the Egyptians were bad people and the Israelites were kind of the good people. Or in George Orwell's animal farm, four legs good, two legs bad. A kind of very simple, dichotomous view of the world. Life isn't like that. Neither is human nature. There was nothing in the Israelite people themselves that made them especially fine moral examples. They're not saved because of their own goodness. Not at all. When God comes to judge, he must judge everyone because he's the fair and equitable judge. Now, a lot of people uh, in our culture... It, uh, find it very difficult to accept the idea of God as judge. It is one of the biggest obstacles to Christian faith for many modern Western people. And it may be an obstacle for you today. It may be one of the reasons why you just find it hard to accept the Christian faith, the idea that God is the judge. And I want to take that seriously this morning. I'm not going to dismiss your questions about God's judgment. I would love to chat with you if, you if you'd like to. But let me just ask you for a couple of minutes to enter into a thought experiment. Imagine that someone commits an awful crime against you or your family. My previous church had a, a, a lovely woman, middle-aged woman, she's just a delightful woman, whose son was in his 20s. He had a sports car that was his pride and joy. And he had it parked in the driveway. And one night, three men came to steal the car. And uh, they broke into it and got it started. And, and the, the son heard them and heard the car and went down to stop them. And he was a strong man, physically able. And he, he tried to get in their way. And they ran him over in his own car. And then they reversed and ran over him again. And he was absolutely 
cruelly killed. Imagine that had happened to you. And then you go to court, and there's a long trial. But the evidence is really clear. And finally, there's a conclusion, the sentencing. And imagine that at that moment, the judge just let off the offender. He just made some excuses about it. Oh, you know, he's had a hard life. He was very poor. It's the only thing he knew. He, he grew up in a difficult home. You would be screaming for a retrial. Everything you knew would be crying out. That's not justice. We need justice. We know it when it's against us. Now that's just you and me. And we're not morally perfect. Do we think that God would look down from heaven and see this world and not require justice too? On his world, all that he has created and made and cares for, on people that he has lovingly made in his own image, that God loves, should we not expect that God would look down and judge the world and do right? Indeed he would. But that does create a problem for you and me. Because when we look at the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Pol Pots and all the monsters, people who just do dreadful things, we instinctively recoil and our heart bleeds for justice. But when we look at ourselves, we tend to give ourselves a pass. We're not that bad. I mentioned last week a friend of mine who's a pastor. He visited a church member who was in prison after committing manslaughter during a robbery. And this man was not actually very repentant, but he snarled that the other person who he had killed was actually a really bad person. I'm not as bad as he was. See how we're so blinded to our own darkness that we give ourselves a pass even in the most ridiculous way. And here is the sobering truth of the Bible and the reality of the world that we live in is that if God comes to judge the world, he must judge all. He's judge of all or not at all. That is justice. And so that includes every single one of us. We will not get a pass just because we think we're rather decent. The judge of all sees all things. And so we are actually doomed. And we're damned. Because God is Holy, holy, holy. It's the essence of who he is. It was the only way to get free. And if he's judge of at all, he's judge of all. But the third thing is mysterious. There was mercy in the blood. There was mercy in the blood. What's all this about getting the lamb and, you know eating it, but taking some of the blood and putting it on the doorpost, and then somehow that means that the death will pass over, and so the meal is called the Passover. The answer to that question is that God must provide a sacrifice, a substitute who covers your sin. Steve's already helped us with that image of a blanket covering. That's what the Israelites are being taught in this powerful image. That lamb somehow is standing in for them and its blood is covering them over. It was a night to remember, wasn't it? And not just for that year, but for the years to come, for the rest of their lives. And in fact, down through every single generation to this very day, three and a half thousand years later, Jewish communities 
celebrate the Passover every year. The scriptures taught them to maintain a memorial feast. They will remember God gave them a meal with a meaning. And this reminds us of the power of ritual. What we're going to do in a few minutes is a, is a ritual. It is symbolic. Taking bread and wine. And these things are a ritual. And we do it monthly. Month in, month out, year after year. For 73 years, people at this church have been doing the same thing. There's power in ritual and repetition. And there's power too in telling our children again and again, kindly, graciously, in an age-appropriate way, about the great things that God has done for us in Jesus. That brings me right back to London, 2023. What does all this mean for you and me today? The world of Egypt in the second millennium BC is rather distant, but here we are in Chesington. And I want to suggest today that as we come to this table with the Passover in mind, that we're standing on particularly holy ground. I'm going to read from Mark's Gospel, from Mark chapter 14. If you want to turn to it, you can. Uh, and if you have a church Bible, it's on page 1020. Page 1020. Mark chapter 14, verse 12 through to 26. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. When he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Notice in this passage what they're celebrating, it's the Passover. 500 years later, they're following the instructions. They're going to eat the lamb. And we know exactly what that looks like now, don't we? Bitter herbs, reminding of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. Unleavened bread, reminding us that we, we had to get it ready. Didn't have time for it to rise and get rid of any yeast in your lives. 
It was customary, it says here, to sacrifice the Passover lamb. And we remember that the only way to escape death and judgment was under that refuge under the blood of that lamb. And clearly this is very important to Jesus because he, he's made all these preparations. He's got the room ready. He's got signals ready. People have prepared it. He knows that the end is drawing near for him. He knows that he's going to be crucified very, very soon. But he's determined to celebrate this Passover meal with his disciples one last time, his last supper with them, because he wants to give them the meal full of meaning. New meaning, which he will give them as the key to understanding his death. And in verses 22 to 25, Jesus does something absolutely staggering, which nobody else has ever done. He reinterprets the Passover meal and he makes it about himself. You see, when a Jewish head of the family celebrated the Passover, he would guide the meal and explain each element. And we've actually done this uh, in our church with a Messianic Christian, David Moss, uh, several times in the past. And this had been done for hundreds of years and is right down to the present day. It's a wonderful occasion. But Jesus does something that no one else would ever dare to do. He takes the bread, he blesses it and breaks it, and he says, this is my body. He makes it about himself. And then he takes the cup of wine and he blesses it and gives it to them. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant. That special relationship between God and people, which is poured out for many. Another account says, he said, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do you see what Jesus has done on the eve of his Betrayal. He looks ahead to the most excruciating ordeal, the cross. And he takes the time to give his followers this meal full of meaning. What's the meaning? It's that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Amen? Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is the one who will be sacrificed. The perfect one. The one with not a single blemish. His life will be poured out, his life blood, and through his death, many, many people will be delivered. We read of the Israelites that 600,000 men and women and children of the Israelites left the country the next day, and the mixed multitude went with them. Jesus is rescuing a people far greater than that. Currently, over 2 billion people in this world would claim the name of Jesus as Savior in some way, shape, or form. The first Passover meal was instituted by a deliverer, Moses, who led the people out of slavery. But the Lord's Supper is instituted by a far greater deliverer, Jesus Christ, who is creating a greater universal people of God, leading us out of slavery to our sins, out of slavery to death, to a future of life without end, to a future promised land which he described as his father's house where he's gone ahead to prepare a place for us. If it were not so, he wouldn't have told us. The first Passover meal centered on a lamb that was slain as a substitute, but Jesus didn't pass around any meat. Notice, why? Because he himself is the lamb. John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Passover story told us that 
Justice will have to fall on everyone. There is no free pass for the Israelites. In every home, there will be a dead firstborn. No matter who you were, there's no future. But there was a way of escape. So put your faith in God's provision of a sacrifice. You had to slay a lamb, put a blood on the doors as a sign, and then you had to, to do that, you had to put your faith in God's mercy that somehow it would work. Many years after the Exodus, the prophet Isaiah wrote a strange, beautiful prediction. He spoke of a suffering servant who would come and rescue God's people from oppression once again. He wrote, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. As a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many. We know who that suffering servant was. We know who the lamb represents. It's Jesus Christ. And he gives us this meal full of meaning, a way of remembering and enacting what he did at the cross and looking forward to when he will drink wine with us again. What does this show us? Jesus is a sacrifice. His death isn't an accident. It's not a tragedy. He's not just setting a moral example, although it has elements of that. Primarily, it is a sacrifice that takes away punishment. Jesus' death is a substitution. The lambs of the Old Testament religion were always mysterious. How could a mere animal take and deal with sin? Now we know the answer. They were only ever a picture of the true Lamb of God, the only one who lived the perfect life and gave it up for you and me. And Jesus' death was sufficient. Remember that young male lamb without blemish and defect? He's a picture because Jesus was perfect His death was of infinite value. It covers the sins of millions and millions of people. We can add nothing to it. We do not need to. We are incapable of doing so. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what do we need to do to receive this mercy? Take shelter under the blood of Jesus. Put your faith in his sacrifice, in his perfect life, not your own sacrifices and your own efforts at life. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in your own goodness, your own efforts, your own morality. Stop trusting in your religion. Let it go. You can't save yourself. But put your trust in Christ alone. Rest on him. Rely on him. Know that he loves you. He adores you. He will never let you go. Rely on his great love and mercy and come to the table this morning. The great hymn writer of a previous generation wrote, talked about Jesus as the rock of ages that had been broken and wounded. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin The double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. 
Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Could this be the morning when you finally put your trust in Jesus Christ? He's ready for you. And those of us here who are the people of God already, notice how the Israelites responded. The people bowed down and worshipped, and they did just what the Lord commanded. Worship in the Bible is not just singing. Singing is an expression of it. Worship in the Bible is bowing down very low, which is a posture of life that says, I love you and I put you in charge of my life and Lord, I want to follow you. I want to stop being the little Pharaoh over my own life and I want to start being an obedient person of God and walk with you this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, according to all that Jesus has commanded. That's a fitting response to such a great sacrifice, isn't it? Let's pray. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save and you alone. Gracious Lord, we thank you so much for these wonderful truths, for this message of mercy that you've poured out on us. A love that knows no bounds, a love that is wider, deeper, higher, broader than anything we could ever comprehend. Thank you that your, your mercy is so great it can cover any sin. Draw us back to you this morning, we pray. Amen.